Uh, we're taking a break from the book of Mark in our study uh, with our annual meeting after the service today. Uh, and I wanted to t- share uh, uh, a, a message. Uh, every year I do this when we have our annual meeting. I share a message on what I believe God's laid on my heart to share with you in regards to uh, what the next uh, year looks like for us. Uh, but also do want to invite you to um, stay after for lunch, uh, even if you didn't bring something or if you're kind of wondering what that looks like for our annual meeting. I've been to those before. It's not probably what you've expected. or um, So please stay um, afterwards and, uh, and, and share that time with us. Um, I do want to share uh, a message on what I believe God has put on my heart this morning. Um, and the title of the message is Confession restoration, and responsive hearts. Uh, But before I do this, I want to ask you to do something really, really radical. Really something that some may have some pushback, that really may be difficult for some people, something that some people will feel paralyzed by. And that is, I want you to turn off your phones and put them down, turn them off, not just vibrate, turn them off, and take off your watch and put it in your pocket. If you need help and prayer during this time, we understand. Because they told me that I have till 12, and I don't want you looking at your watch. In all seriousness, I do want you, as best you can, to be present. To not be hurried. To not be distracted. To not be thinking ahead of this afternoon. But to be here. Why? Because God's here. And I think he wants to say something to us. And I want us to be listening. I believe that God has given us a message for this morning and for this year with three very important areas. And that if you haven't guessed it, they are confession, restoration, and a responsive heart. And we're going to take a look at a familiar soap opera in the Bible story. King David, Bathsheba, Uriah, Nathan, and of course God. And we're going to trust him to connect all that for us this morning. So before we begin, let us go to the Lord in prayer. God, as our heads are bowed, as our eyes are closed, May our hearts be fully awake and engaged. God, I know how difficult it is in my own life to not be distracted, to not be pulled, to not be looking ahead, or even thinking back. So God, by your supernatural presence here this morning, would you help us be present with you? to hear from you, to receive from you, 
and have the attitude to give back to you. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you, behind you, beside you, that they would be present and hear and respond to the Lord this morning. your people. You are our God, so teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by asking you a question. Are there words that you find challenging to say? Words that sometimes get stuck in your throat? Words that perhaps seem impossible for you to speak? And I'm not talking about words that are hard to pronounce. I'm talking about words that are difficult to say because of their meaning. Some of you remember that back in the 70s and 80s, there was a sitcom called Happy Days. It's one of the most successful sitcoms, and everyone's favorite character in that sitcom was the Fonz. Right? He was a biker, high school dropout. He was the heartthrob of all the girls. He was the envy of all the guys. And in one episode, the Fonz finds he has given Ralph some terrible advice. And later on, regretting his mistake and advice, he goes to Ralph and admits that he is wrong. Look, I know what I told you to do, but when I told you to do that, I was wrong. <laughs> Ralph, I was wrong. <laughs> I was not exactly right. What do you mean, not right? I mean, not right. I don't get you. You mean you were wrong? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Malfa. I was what you just said I was just then, yeah. Wrong? The Fonz wrong? Malf, look. <laughs> there is a first time for everything, huh? How many can relate? Husbands, wives, parents, kids, teachers, students, coaches, players, friends, family. This morning we're going to take a look at someone in the Bible who was actually a lot like the Fonz. As king of Israel, David had power. He had credibility, he had popularity, he had frame, and like the Fonz, he was the man. However, unlike the Fonz, David could confess that he was wrong, and in doing so, experienced the results of God's restoration, and that's what we're going to look at today. Now, we find the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah and Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Now, we're not going to read all, there, all that, but put your finger there as we go through the story, the story and the confession. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5 says this, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed, 
and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Now get this picture. Most of the officials and army are away at war. David has stayed back in Jerusalem. And one afternoon in the early evening, maybe he's taking a nap, he's laying in his bed, and he decided to take a walk on his rooftop palace. And it was there that he saw a beautiful woman bathing. And he didn't just glance, he stared. And eventually he sent for her. He took her to his bed, and then just as abruptly as he had sent for her, he sent her back home. Her name was Bathsheba. Her husband was Uriah. And Uriah was one of King David's loyal soldiers who on that day was away fighting a war for David on his behalf. For context, it was springtime when the soldiers were away at war and Uriah was off at war defending David's kingdom. And a month or so, after David had called to Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, she learns that she's pregnant. She sends word to David, and David receives that word. Now what is David going to do? In the rest of chapter 11, we see David's response. And what we need to understand is that David is very good at solving problems. He shrewdly gives Uriah, her husband, a month's leave from his duty at war. How sweet of David. David, as you read through chapter 11, naturally expects his weary soldier to return from battle and to go home to his own bed with his own wife. And then after being at home in bed with his own wife, learns that she's pregnant and he will think the baby is his. But David's devious plan fails. In verses 10 through 14 of 2 Samuel, we read the kind of soldier that Uriah was. That he was dedicated and loyal to his king and his fellow soldiers. Because when Uriah returns home, he chooses to sleep not in the comfort and warmth of his own bed with his own wife. But he sleeps on the floor of the king's palace. Uriah said to David... The ark and Israel of Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Uriah's thinking is this. If my comrades, if my fellow soldiers are sleeping in a field, in a tent, who am I to come back home and enjoy this? Later on in the chapter, David shrewdly tries again, this time getting him drunk. 
But Uriah wouldn't give in to the temptation to be comfortable or even be with his wife if his fellow soldiers couldn't. So David comes up with another plan to wrinkle out this whole deal. Verse 15, he had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So, in effect, David murders Uriah by placing him on the front battle and then telling everybody else to retreat, leaving him there alone to face his fate of death. And sadly, that plan works with disgusting precision. And after there's this time of appropriate mourning, David sends back for Bathsheba, and he marries her. Crazy plan. It's almost a nauseating strategy to think about to get away with what you want and to cover up adultery, lies, cover up, murder, all from the king of Israel. But everything in the David and Bathsheba story shifts dramatically when Nathan, David's pastor, shows up and preaches a sermon to an audience of one. He brings a message to the king. At first, David doesn't even know that he's listening to a sermon. He's not sitting in a pew. Nathan's not standing on a stage. There's no music. There's no Bible reading. There's not even a reference to God. Nathan, in chapter 12, simply tells David a story about a rich man. And this rich man has large flocks of sheep, and he needs this lamb to be slaughtered for the guests that he's having over for dinner. But instead of this rich man taking one of his own sheep, he goes to the man down the street who's poor and has a pet lamb and takes that pet lamb and slaughters that pet lamb for his dinner guests. And David's response to Pastor Nathan's sermon, verse 5 of chapter 12, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must take restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. So outraged, so calloused at the cruelty of this rich man, David just blurts out, this man must die. And in that moment, Pastor Nathan speaks one of the most powerful sentences in all of Scripture. He says... To the king, you are the man. The boldness of Nathan. How will David respond now? When David heard Nathan say to him, you are the man, without hesitation... David took full responsibility. Verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That is amazing. 
Just think for a moment. As king, David possessed absolute power. David lived beyond anybody's scrutiny, beyond anyone's control. So why confess? Why not take Nathan out? I mean, think about it. There's not a CNN reporter. There's not a Fox News press conference saying, is it true about your rendezvous with Bathsheba? No one knows. No social media waiting to post the latest update. And yet David immediately confesses that he's wrong. In no uncertain terms, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And before long, David is praying what we recognize today as Psalm 51. And before we read that psalm together, let me assure you of something. Let me assure you that Psalm 51 has something crucial to say to every one of us. Psalm 51 is for those who have never come to grips with the absolute horror of human sin. Psalm 51 is for those who've never come to the grips with the magnificent mystery of God's mercy and grace. And let me remind us this. That whenever grace appears to be anything less than amazing, it's likely because we have lost sight of our desperate need for God. So David in this psalm helps us on both counts, demonstrating the devastating effects of sin, and at the same time, the incredible quality of God's redeeming love. Psalm 51 is also for those who think they're too spiritually mature, too devoted to ever blow up their life. And I would just say to those of us who are living in that illusion, we would be wise to never forget that this psalm describes the experience of King David, whose scripture describes as a man after God's own heart. So again, as Is that you? Psalm 51 is also for those who've fallen into terrible sin and are thinking that they can never get back up again. For those who believe it's possible to fall beyond the reach of God's mercy or that there's a limit to God's grace. And for those, it's a reminder that no one is so holy that they can't fall or so lost that they can't be found and forgiven. But there's another group of people that this psalm is for. It's for those who think that if they've fallen and gotten back up and been forgiven, that they are still useless to God, to the church, and to the world. And David's experience, his life, is proof positive that that's not true. So let's read Psalm 51, the first ten verses together. And I'd like to read it responsibly. I'll read the first verse. And where it says all, that's you. (laughs) Be gracious to me, God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity 
and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, like the bones which you have broken. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew You see so clearly that Psalm 51 brings together the painful reality of sin's reach and the depth with the utter wonder of God's tenderness, kindness, and mercy. It's been said that Psalm 51 brilliantly relates to us that confession is like a doorway, a portal. It's a doorway or a portal that leads to new life, a new world. That on this side of the door is sin and hurt and pain. Pain felt and hurt given. And that confession, this doorway, this portal, opens the opportunity to a whole new world of freedom, experiencing and sharing the tenderness, kindness, and mercy of God. But I think we have to go back. In this story, we have to ask, what is the basis for David's plea for forgiveness? Does David appeal to his track record as the king of Israel? Does he remind God of how many psalms he has written and how awesome he is and how much he's blessed people with his words? Does he mention his faithful service? Does he run through this list of character reference? Well, if you'll just check with so-and-so, you'll find. Not even close. David doesn't expect forgiveness based on his own sincerity or even his own spiritual devotion. He doesn't expect forgiveness based on his deep pain and sadness for having sin. He doesn't expect forgiveness based on his promise to never ever sin again. Or his earnest determination to somehow or another to make it up to God. That's not to say that these qualities don't matter. But David's appeal to God for forgiveness is based on what he knows of God. God's open arms, God's mercy, His compassion, His limitless love. That's David's appeal. He says, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. It's interesting to do a word study within these verses to learn that David uses three words to describe sin. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity 
and cleanse me from my sin. Why the three words? Transgressions, as David calls it, is a deliberate stepping over God's boundaries. Did he do that? It's where we get the sign, no trespassing. David deliberately stepped over, transgressed. Iniquity has to do with this inner quality, this flaw of thinking that I know better than God. And there's sin. He just missed God's perfection, missing the mark. In all of these things, he asked God to blot out his transgressions, to wash away his iniquity, and to cleanse him from his sins. Now, one of the coolest things about this this transition that David's going through is the word choice he uses and the word picture he uses. And the words he used for washing away and cleansing was often used to describe what it means to wash clothes. It was this process of saturating a garment with lye soap and then stepping on it and treading on it and beating it against a rock and then pour rushing water over it. So can you just imagine what David's saying? Hearing God, hearing his cry to God, God, do that to my spirit. Because my sin is like this deep stain that has soiled the very fabric of my soul. And so, God, I need you to do what only you can do. It's to beat out with your love and tenderness. To wash over me your grace to make me clean from my sin. When David confesses the enormity of his sin in verses 3 and 4, his language is no less graphic. He says, my transgressions and my sin, it's just, it's just against you. You only have I sinned. So you are right, God, when you judge and you're justified in your verdict. He offers no excuses, no rationalizations, he refuses to shift any blame. He doesn't say, now, hold on just a minute, God. Yes, I know I sinned, but, you know, it takes two to tango. What about Bathsheba? I mean, look at her. She's so beautiful, seductive. She could have used a shower curtain. My wife wasn't meeting my needs. And besides, God, you, you know the pressures I have as king. You know because you put me here. Considering what I face on a routine basis, the pulls, the demands, the expectations, God, honestly, I would expect you to cut me a little slack. But there's none of that in David. He doesn't blame it on Satan. Well, the devil, devil made me do it. There's no insanity plea. I, I didn't know what I was doing. There is no appeal to any kind of diminished capacity. David just owns it. And he says to God, it's on me. Nathan is right. I am the man. In other words, this isn't just a thing that happened. David is beginning to recognize that it is something inside of him that he just can't escape. 
but he can't get out of his mind. In fact, he says it's always before me. Translated as if the words of his sin and the, and the pictures of his sin is seared on the inside of his eyelids. And then worst of all, David says, I realize my sin is ultimately against God alone. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, I've got to say, I've pondered and scratched my head about that verse. Because I find it curious. How can it be against God only? And he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He conspired and killed Uriah. And he betrayed the trust of a nation. How could he say against God only? Well, I don't know for certain, but I believe he could say he sinned against God only because David is so utterly brokenhearted that he has treated his loving God with such disregard in a way that he's blinded to all other aspects of his despicable behavior. In his sin and brokenness, he is consumed by this question, how could I have treated my God this way? David's confession doesn't aim to simply get things off his chest so he can move on. His confession is designed to tell God and everyone that God was right all along. Confession lets you and everyone else know that God is always right, that his judgment was appropriate, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David acknowledges that his problem with sin wasn't something that just started with puberty, or that started from this childhood trauma. David says that his sin is deeper and much more historical, hereditary, but he makes no effort to excuse it. David's problem, as well as yours and mine, is not that we commit individual sins, The problem is that we have this disposition, this nature to sin. And so what we need most is not a new lifestyle. We need a new life. We don't need new habits. We need a new heart. And the hope that is there for us to have a new life and a new heart is Jesus. Here's a crucial point. Bible stories aren't just about biblical characters like David and Bathsheba. They are about our lives, too. Bible stories aren't just stories to entertain us and inspire us. They are a lens for us to look through. A lens that enables us to see ourselves as we are and then move toward transformation, becoming more and more like Jesus. You see, David's story clarifies that the issue isn't whether or not Christ followers sin. We do, and we know it. The issue of sin is whether we cherish it or hate it and want to abandon it or not. In his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, John Ortberg explains that confession is not primarily something God has to do because he needs it. God is not clutching tightly to his mercy as if we have to pry it from his fingers like a child's last cookie. Our confession isn't for God as much as it is for us. And God is very generous with his grace and mercy. 
So when we practice genuine confession like David, I believe two things happen. The first one is this, we are freed from guilt. And secondly, I believe we are at least a little less likely to sin in the same way in the future than if we hadn't confessed. In a nutshell, sin will look and feel less appealing when we confess it before God. Let me stop and say this. I think one of the most frequently misunderstood yet compelling features of the gospel is this. Is that confession isn't a groveling admission that I'm a horrible person. Confession does not require shaming, beating ourselves up, hating ourselves. To the contrary, I have sinned against the Lord is a sentence that is full of hope and promise. Because when we, like David, find ourselves before God, honestly, admiringly, trustingly before God, it's then that we find our actual humanity. And that's when we discover that before and because of God, in genuine confession, we are not less, but we are made more. We are not demeaned, we are dignified, and we're not condemned but we're forgiven and set free. And while David's sin was immense, it was overwhelmingly surpassed by God's limitless grace. While David's sin cannot and must not be minimized, it is minuscule compared to God's merciful recovery from it. I have found in my life it's always a mistake to focus our attention on our sin after it's been recognized and confessed. The less said about it, the better. It's God's work of forgiveness that needs to be the main event, the main focus, not our sin. Now, by the way, I, I left something out of the story at the beginning. I didn't forget, I meant to. Immediately after David said, I have sinned against the Lord, his good pastor Nathan replied in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You look at this and like, you've you got to be kidding me. What kind of God puts away the sin of adultery and murder without some kind of severe punishment and penalty? Why wasn't David killed? Why did God forgive him? David had no idea what it would cost God to forgive him. But a thousand years later, Jesus entered the world. And Jesus lived the life that David should have lived. And Jesus died the death that David should have died. And God didn't demand payment for his sin from David because God had planned from the foundation of the earth and the world to pay for it himself through his only son, Jesus. So how did Jesus pay the penalty? Jesus lived his life to perfection. You see, when Jesus looked at a woman, he didn't see something he could take. He saw something he could give. Jesus in John's gospel, we find this story. There was a conversation with a sexually promiscuous woman. 
Just the two of them at the well, and Jesus asks nothing but a drink of water, and in return, he gives her living water, where she'll never thirst again. Jesus' death was sacrificial. He went to the front lines to give his life, to make his enemies his friends. He took on the total weight of sin. Jesus became what David was and what we are so that David and we could become what he is. That's the substitutionary death of Jesus. So we can live our lives in daily awareness that we are completely forgiven, we are forever free, all because, all because of the grace of God. This story, this passage of scripture and topic is very fitting for us to celebrate communion. To remember the death Jesus died, forgiveness offered, and the new life he gives. Seth and the team are going to come and play and lead us in a song. The men are going to come, pass out the elements. As you hear and sing the song, stay in your seats because the elements are going to be passed to you. And I'd ask you to hold the bread and the cup. And as you hold the bread and the cup, think about your life and this story. Think about your sin, but even more, think about Jesus. Think about forgiveness confession, restoration, that Psalm 51 is for all of us. As the men come forward, I I would ask you now to begin reflecting on God. Allow the Lord to reconcile this thought of the destruction of sin with his tender, merciful invitation of forgiveness. Hold the elements. I'll lead us in partaking of the elements. And then I'll close with an invitation to respond. God, thank you this morning for this gift of Jesus. We stand here and sit here today in humble gratitude to say thank you. Amen. After the confession, after the acknowledgement of sin before God, listen to what David's prayer is in verses 12 through 15 of Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. David desires restoration with God and a renewed and willing spirit to follow God. And after that, there is a responsive heart to God of obedience and tangible response to what he has been given by God. Notice the then statements. After being restored, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted, meaning I'm going to tell everybody about what I've been given. Forgiveness and life and freedom and mercy and grace. I will tell them all. Isn't that what we want in our churches? People who've been forgiven to tell others where to find forgiveness. He says, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Meaning, God, you have been right all along. 
And so this morning, I don't know where you are with the Lord. But I want to call us as individuals and as a church to respond. I want to ask a few simple questions and then open the front of this stage as an altar of prayer. As you think through these questions, Seth and the team will be leading us, singing a song, a meditative song that we can think about. And I want to call everyone here to open their hearts up to the Lord and respond with surrendered hearts. To enter individually as a church, to open this doorway, if you will, this altar becoming somewhat of a portal to a new way of life. And if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, there is an experienced freedom waiting for you. Today is the day that that new life, that sin's forgiven. So come and tell Jesus you trust him this morning. It's obvious he will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all way, all, all kinds of unrighteousness. Confession is the doorway, it's the portal to a new world, a new life. And if you're scared to come forward, grab a friend because they're scared too. So let me ask you, will you right now confess and renounce any sin that's in your heart? R remember, there is a hopeful and wonderful promise in, God, in David's response. Against you, God, I have sinned. That's where it begins. Transgressions. That you stepped into places that were clearly marked no trespassing. Have you thought in your heart, God, I know better than you do? Are there places that you've just missed the mark in your decisions? And can I just ask us all to just hand those things over to God? To confess them. And to say without hesitation, not like the font, but say, God, I was wrong. Will you, like David, pray, restore to me the joy of your salvation? Notice verse 8. He says, make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Restoration. God, do to me that washing, beat out sin. Wash over me with your grace. Cleanse me. Restore the longing of righteousness, the beauty of God's love. Restore the, the overwhelming presence of truth and grace. Restore to me, solidify in me the wonder of your sacrifice, the wonder of the cross. Will you allow the beauty of God's restoration move you into a deeper and more joyful obedience to him? The New Living Translation translates verse 12 like this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. So maybe pray to God, stir me up so that my tongue will joyfully proclaim your righteousness, that my mouth may declare your praise. So as Seth sings, let's respond. God, do a work now that only you can do. There's no arm twisting, there's none of that. 
It's all about your spirit that we pray at the very beginning. Speak to us, we pray. Grant us, we pray, courage to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.